0: Well, this morning we have a wonderful subject before us. Very encouraging message that y'all going to love to hear. The supreme wrath of God. It's a hit nowadays. Real secret Yes. <laughs> you know, I, my hope is this morning, as we do this, it's both. This will both surprise you and hopefully stir you, and allow you to see something that is very necessary in our day and age. Because this usually isn't a subject we love to contemplate. It's like, oh goody, let's, let's uh, delight ourselves in the wrath of God. <laughs> That's usually not the case. We go close to those areas, and even if we read them in our Bibles, we go quickly past them. Because they kind of, they can be scary almost. Terrifying. And we do live in an age, we live in an age today where so much is said about God's love and God's grace and God's goodness, about you living your best life now and everything's great, that we all of a sudden have almost lost the context for the gospel. Because to say to the world, Jesus loves you and offers you salvation. They're like, okay, great. Um, wonderful. That's good for some folks. Works for them. But uh, it really doesn't mean much. Salvation from what? Right? Well, this morning, we're, we're going to see and hopefully understand that until you understand the wrath of God, you don't understand the salvation of Jesus. And so, with that, let's pray and ask that God would really help us to understand this and see this in all of its truth. Father, we're so thankful this morning that we have your word, that you are our God and we are your people, and that Jesus is our Savior. I'm so thankful, O Lord, that you've delivered and saved and shown mercy and grace and love in Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, I can't imagine anyone anyone wanting to suffer under your wrath. Help us to understand it. Help us to know what your wrath really is and how it sets the context for the gospel. May we know you, even in your wrath, may we understand your ways so that we might learn to fear you. Where we ask this in our Lord Jesus' name. Amen. You might have uh, heard it put before. I'm not sure. I've heard this analogy before. Like if I was to sell a parachute to you on an airplane, let's just say this is the plane, and this is the aisle, and you know, these are the rows, and I stand up front and I, and I make a pitch for parachutes. And I said, hey, here you, who would like a parachute? we got a parachute for sale. They're, the prices are not fairly reasonable. $100 a, a kit. Strap it on and you're good to go. People would probably, just like they'd pay attention to the clicking of the seatbelts and the oxygen masks and um, everything else, they'd probably be reading their magazine saying, what's this fool doing? Um, okay, does he know something we don't know? The context there is like, okay, everything's going along fine. There isn't even turbulence. Every, every time I fly, it seems like things are going fairly good. And you, you could have those paranoid people who are freaked out the whole time. They'll say, I'll take one. Price seems good to me, just in case. But I'll tell you what, if the context was changed a little bit, all of a sudden the value of parachutes goes up. If the pilot came on and said, folks, this plane is going down. You have about... 15 seconds, say your prayers. <laughs> and then I stood up and said, Hey, folks, anybody interested in a parachute? You would give your life savings. <laughs> me, me, <laughs> please, please. Because what, all that happened there was a change of context. So you understand that, that, like, you see that as your salvation in light of what's happening. But apart from that, blue skies, Calm air, everything's going wonderful, they're serving drinks, you've had a few. You know, they got those nice tasting little crackers they send around, everything's good. Who wants a parachute? And th- this is really how we have to understand the salvation of Jesus in the proper context. Because once we do, we, we begin to see this is in salvation indeed, true salvation. It's only when you're in serious trouble, serious trouble that salvation from that trouble is the best news you could ever hear. However, if everything's well and good, all is just fine. Salvation offered through Jesus sounds like something that might work for some people. And then, because we're trying to win people, We don't offer him as a a savior, really, from anything other than a ticket so that when you die, you could go to heaven, to this good place. So we have to almost change the scheme a bit. We have to make Jesus more appealing. We have to make the life more appealing. And so instead of warning people and calling them to to the savior, we actually have to become almost salespeople to win them somehow, to to get them to see how how good and delightful and beneficial the benefits of Jesus are. We change the context, we understand the wrath of God, we understand our situation before God, and all of a sudden Jesus will begin to make great sense. All of a sudden the gospel gets clear. So let's set the context then. Let's seek to understand the wrath of God. Because when we understand it, all, I hopefully... Hopefully what happens is we see ourselves before God and we see our predicament and all of a sudden there's a heightened awareness and there's a fear that goes up because there ought to, there ought to be a sense of fear that increases. And then all of a sudden you look to Jesus and a sense of joy increases as you cling to him. So this morning, hopefully you come away with from here rejoicing in Jesus, rejoicing in the fact that you have a savior. And you're very glad for that. So to begin with, we're going to look at the passive wrath of God. Now that might strike you as strange. It did for me at first. The passive wrath of God. And in order to understand that, if you turn to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, here you're going to see something that I found incredibly fascinating when I first discovered it. Stumbled upon this passage and was meditating on it and thought, wow, this is absolutely fascinating. Romans chapter one, verse 18. For the wrath of God, you heard that? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here's a general statement. The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and righteousness of men. Really? He's saying it's revealed. And the question I have is, how is it revealed? This is what we're going to find out. And he says, that this, these particular group of people who by their unrighteousness, they suppress the truth. And then he goes on to talk about that, what it means to suppress this truth about what is made known, is clear to them, but they reject him, they reject God. And then he goes on to say this in verses 24 and following. Because of their rejection of God, rejection of what is clear, rejection of what is plain in creation, and the truth of who he is, therefore God gave them up. God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. And likewise the men. And he goes on now to describe all the different perverted and lustful things that happen as a result of this. So what you cannot miss here is this, that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all this ungodliness. Now, your question is, how is it revealed? Well, it's like this. God, It's revealed in the way that God gives them up. God gives them up to what? Their own lusts and their passions, and then they start to burn in their lusts and passions, and they get perverted and twisted and go off and start doing all kinds of sinful things. God gives them up, and this is what he says in uh, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. It's because they reject him, they reject the truth, they reject all that was offered to them, that he has blessed them, he's revealed himself to them, he's given everything to them, and, and they suppress the truth, and they believe a lie, they reject him, and therefore God, what does he do? He says his wrath is revealed in what way? What does he do? He gives them up. That's passive. He basically says, go, have your way. That's what you want. Go. I pull back, pulls back from them. God pulls back. He gives them up to their lusts and passions and away they go headlong. And you know, I, re- I remember being fascinated by this passage years ago because it, it always struck me as odd. When you think of the wrath of God, what do you think of? Fire, lightning bolts, anger, God being, like, I think of wrath like, "Ah!" Like, if I showed you pictures, and you, you know, one is terribly angry all the way to someone's happy, and I said, identify for me the person who's filled with wrath. We all pick like, that guy there who's just go out of his mind, right? Wrath. When we think of wrath, fire, and brimstone, is kind of like uh, that's the stuff wrath is made of. So when it says the wrath of God is revealed against all this ungodliness, and it's said that it's revealed in this passive, giving them up kind of way, it struck me as odd. I'm thinking, that is wild to think. God's wrath is revealed by him handing them over, saying, okay, fine. And I I wrestled with this, and I thought about it, and the analogy that came to my mind, that I can begin to relate to this with, is when you're a parent, as a parent you have children, and your children can exasperate you at times, and you get to the point where you're so frustrated, parents, remember those moments, when you're so frustrated, you say, fine, fine, have it, go, just just get out of my presence, go uh, go and eat all you want, and I hope you get sick. <laughs> you get to the point where you're done, and so you say, fine, and, and, and we never think of that as wrath, we actually think of that, I was angry and frustrated, and instead of exercising my wrath, what I did is I withheld, and I just said, fine, get away, just go and do your thing, and... Uh, may god have mercy on you and you learned your lesson the hard way. You're done, right? You kind of like So I thought that's that's actually a fairly good analogy of what what god, what it's like when god passively says fine. There's a sense of you can you know he's not just saying okay, whatever, do what you want. No, he's He's, there's a wrath, there's an anger against all that he's done, all that he's revealed, all that he's given, everything. It's, you know, the gifts are dripping off your chin, running down your head, and they reject him and deny him. And he says, fine, pulls back passively in his wrath, his, his anger, and he says, have your way. You know, I think that even when it comes to this passive wrath, there's an aspect of this that's even true when people go to hell. So it's just not active wrath. There's also passive wrath even in people going to hell. Because I think this is really ultimately what ends up in the end is the, is the, a final declaration by God as the people are before him and he says, I am going to grant you what you've always wanted to be rid of me. You hate me, you've rejected me, and you've not wanted me. Now I'm going to give you what you've wanted. All you want are my gifts. All you want are my pleasures. All you want is my goodness to be poured on you, and you don't want me, and I'm going to give you that. Welcome to hell. A handing over. A separation from God. The description of hell is if you want to describe it, what's it like experientially? It's fire, it's brimstone, it's it's gnashing of teeth, it's wailing, it's awful. But you know what that really is? It's a it's a separation from God. You're outside. I'm gonna take my presence away and I'm gonna take all my gifts away. You don't get my gifts and not me. You get Nothing. And now you can have it. And that is going to be awful. Awful. You know, when we look at this passage in in Romans chapter 1, one thing we have to understand is that it is a horrible, horrible thing for God to pull back. It's not, this passive wrath is bad. (laughs) It's a bad deal because all of a sudden what you get is chaos, confusion, darkness. God no longer protecting, providing, preserving, guarding, defending, blessing, shielding. God pulls away, and all of a sudden, you get stuff you never imagined. You know, and and here's the weird part in it. When people go headlong in sin, there's a mixture of delighting in the temporary sin, but with it comes all kinds of darkness, shame, guilt, disgust, and, and confusion. And all of a sudden, if you ever have been trapped and snared in sin, you're filled with confusion. And and you're in a place where you can't even think straight. You have these t- temporary pleasures. And when you have the pleasure, it's delightful. But when it's over, you have more guilt and more shame. And now you're in this weird cycle of like almost n- needing and lusting for more because when, at least when I had that pleasure, pleasure and while I was in it for the moment, it felt good in the moment. So you seek and pursue that moment so you can have that pleasure, that delight. And now you need more of it because, well, the returns are diminishing because it wasn't the same as it was last time, and so now I'm trying to get the same high, the same delight. That food, the food I ate, the drug I took, the the alcohol I drank, the friendships I had, the the sex, the the, the money, the fame, the power, whatever it was that was was taking and giving me some kind of pleasure, it, it takes more of it now. Because now I have extra guilt and shame and condemnation and darkness that I have to try to cover over. It is an ugly, awful place. A great example of this is the temple in the Old Covenant, when God removed his glory, removed his presence from his people, removed his protection, and all of a sudden you you watch Israel's story, and it's a spiraling effect down into darkness, into chaos, into shame, into guilt, into disgust, and every kind of wicked perversion you could think of. Judges, in the book of Judges, we see it again this example of the passive wrath of God. God says, fine, and he starts to pull back. In Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, it says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals, the Baals. And they'd abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, did you see what happened? They went after these other gods, and what happened? The lo- it provoked him to anger the Lord, their God. So what did he do? He went on to say, They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to the plunderers. Did you see what he did? He did, Just like Romans 1, he gave them up. said, okay. I'll give them over to your plunderers who plundered them and he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. They didn't understand even that the reason they could withstand their enemies, the reason why they could defend themselves, the reason why they had what they needed, the reason why they had these blessings was because of the Lord, their God. And so he says, okay, fine. You don't want me. You want these other gods have them. And Lord backs off. And what happens? Nothing but sin, death, chaos, darkness, oppression, and destruction ensues. And this would get bad enough that all of a sudden God's people were in such a mess, so oppressed by the enemy, what would they do? They would cry out to God, oh Lord, Lord, have mercy on us. Forgive us. They see that we're we're sinning and God is no longer with us. He is not for us. He is not protecting us. He's not defending us. He's not with us in any way. And what would God do? He would turn to them and God would send a deliverer. And he would move back in towards them providing his protection, his provision, his blessing, his goodness. But then once again, God does this and what does his people do? They get Drunk and happy and well-fed and everything's going good. And they're they're kind of in a stupor and they start heading off once again after the foreign gods. And this is the cycle. So we have to understand the passive wrath of God. It's truly indeed God's wrath when he pulls back. But here's the good part about that wrath and the judgment ensues. I'd much rather have the passive wrath of God than the active wrath of God. Because when the passive wrath of God, when God pulls back, he often does this so that his people would come to their senses and repent and turn back to him. And you see this throughout Scripture. God pulling away, his people coming to their senses, repenting, drawing to him, and then he, he provides his covering, his protection, his, his blessing upon them. And so the passive wrath of God is actually a very good thing because it often leads us to repentance as we see his absence. And if you've ever walked with God and you've walked away from God and you've seen God pull his hand back on you before because you're off in sin and you know how miserable life is there and then you turn back to God and you see him come and cover you again, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, I praise you, O oh Lord. That you you did not let me keep on going in that, but you actually, you judged me in this, and your wrath was poured out on me in this, and you actually disciplined me in this, and you drew me back to yourself. So the passive wrath of God, it's actually a very good and redemptive kind of wrath because when he does it, the reason he's doing it is so that people would come to their senses and, and perhaps maybe see at some point be broken and see their mess and their disaster and that only only God could possibly save them. Because here's the next thing that happens. If the passive wrath of God is not effectual, at some point comes the active wrath of God. And the first example we see of God actively doing something is, in regard to his wrath is in the garden. Because God actively takes Adam and Eve and he puts them outside and separates himself from them. And this is what causes the death between God and man. There now the fellowship has been broken, there's no longer communion, and a death ensues in our souls. Darkness, a lack of meaning and purpose permeates our souls. Where God, where are you, O God? So God actively brought death upon all humanity. The second example we see in scripture of God actively uh, pursuing, I mean actively pouring out his wrath, is in the flood. God got to the point where he could no longer handle the sin of humanity. And he said in Genesis 6, 5 through 8, The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so God made a covenant with him and his children and spared them. But God actively, actively brought his wrath upon humanity. And what did he do? He brought destruction. He flooded the earth. So when God actively pours out his wrath, people die. It's, it's not good. It's the end. Normally, when God actively says, okay, that's it, Done over. Another example of this that we see in Scripture, this is probably one of the more famous examples that people think of when you think of the wrath of God, Sodom and Gomorrah. And the reason being is because that visually has all the the signs of like, that's what I think of when I think of wrath, fire and brimstone, right? Wicked people, God actively says, that's it, I'm done. If there was one righteous person, Lot, you're highly questionable and suspect, and the only reason that you're coming out is because Abraham prayed for you, so get you and your family out. And God pours out his wrath actively on his people. And what happens? They're dead. It's over. Over in very dramatic fashion. A less dramatic example is God exiling his people from jerusalem but it's only less dramatic if you just think of yeah they got knocked out of jerusalem went up to babylon it's it's incredibly dramatic and and actually very horrific when you understand what really happened took place god had warned his people and warned them he'd pulled back he already pulled back his blessing and you get the passive wrath was active (laughs) yeah kind of was so he passively, he withdraws from them and then they're oppressed and suppressed and, and, and all kinds of darkness and sin and wickedness is happening upon Jerusalem. But he keeps on sending his prophets to call them back to himself and they won't turn. He's warning them, listen, I am going to bring something that's so incredibly nasty that you, this will be remembered forever because it's going to be dark. It's going to be awful. It's going to be horrible. And it got so horrible when the Babylonians came and sieged Jerusalem that people were eating people, mothers were eating their children. And when you read the descriptions, it's hard sometimes if you read it and really think about it. Most people don't like to think about it, they just glaze over it. The scriptures are not shy in describing what is going to happen because they want to understand this was wicked and this was awful and this was nasty on every level. So being exiled and the siege that happened on Jerusalem and the city was destroyed, the city was burnt and every, and this small remnant was taken away was a horrible, horrible judgment. God actively brought his judgment on his people because they would not repent of their sins. But you know the harshest, the harshest judgment God's act of wrath ever poured out on humanity? You know what that was? The cross. This is where God both passively withdrew from his son and actively poured out the judgment upon sin for the world upon him. He withdrew. You can see this withdrawing. Jesus knows what's happening. He's in the garden before. It's all about to take place. And it's so intense that he's sweating drops of blood, and he's crying out to his father that he would take this cup from him, but he knew he couldn't. And so he says, yet not my will but yours be done. And he submits to this, and the father pulls back the wicked and evil men because until that point, did you know what was happening all the way through the Gospels? These wicked and evil men wanted to kill Jesus from the beginning. They tried throwing him off a cliff in Nazareth, The first day when he announced what was going on to them and all the way through, they were seeking for ways to get him. And why was he sneaking through the crowds? Why could they not get a hold of him? Why could they not get him? And why until his day appointed day happened? What did he seem so like Teflon man? It's because God was with him. God was protecting him. God was shielding him because he is God, you know, the God man. But, th- but there's a sense of what happens is passively the father, the father pulls back and all of a sudden the evil was allowed to come upon him. And they got him and they, maligned him and they spit on him and they had a false trial with him and they falsely accused him and they abandoned him and they abused him and they ripped his clothes off him and they beat him and they spit on him and they tore his hair out and they just went after him with gnashing teeth and the father withheld. And then the act of wrath of God as he places the sin of humanity upon his son. He actively does it and, and then because of that heaven and earth, there's a, there's a shaking there's an earthquake, there's darkness and then Jesus cries out my God, my God why have you forsaken me? The, fa- the father pulls back and then the father pours on. All of this This wrath for the sins of the world. You know, folks, I don't think we understand the nature of sin. I know we don't. I know we don't get our sin and how sinful it really is, how wicked it really is, how dark it really is, how bad it really is. All you have to do is look at what they did to Jesus and say, that's the heart of man. That's what we're like. That's me. That's me. And God pours out his wrath on his own son to save us. And so when the Bible says Jesus was the propitiation for our sin, God's wrath was propitiated, which means extinguished, poured out, no longer. He, when he, when it was finished and it was done, it was finished and done. It was, per- and that word means perpetuated. The turning away of the wrath had been fulfilled. The wrath had been poured out. All that he had was, was exhausted and it was done. It was finished. Finished complete. So that those who cling to Jesus, Those who turn to Jesus, those who love Him and serve Him and follow Him, the Father has nothing but love and compassion for. Because His wrath has been propitiated, poured out, finished. How could He double dip? How could He then pour out wrath upon us whom He's already poured out Wrath upon his son for the sins that we think, oh, yeah, he'll pour out his wrath on me because, of I, because I've sinned. No, not if you cling to Jesus. Because as you turn to Jesus, as you cling to Jesus, his wrath has been poured out. He's not going to pour it out again. It's already been done. In Christ, there's no more wrath remaining. When I, one thing I don't think many people understand, well, even among Christians, is how horrible it is to come under the wrath of God. Many Christians don't understand. Because often, it's not even something we think about. It's not something we think about very much. And not only that, because of the age we live in, we're constantly be, being distracted with activity. Activity that's completely unrelated to the wrath of God. In fact, activity is always associated with the gifts and blessings of God we're busy running around doing work that we we sometimes like and enjoy and dealing with issues of the day we eat and we drink and we sleep and we we Play on our phones and our tablets and our computers, and we go to movies and we dine out and we 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 trying to figure out what we're going to do uh, this afternoon to entertain ourselves and have some fun and and just delightful things, and we go from one activity to the next to one activity to the next and one activity to the next, like oblivious as to what's going on. We don't understand, like if you understand the horrible wrath of God and how nasty it is, and then you look at what, pe- the way, what people are doing and how they're living and acting, and you know, there's a mass, massive portion of people who are going to come under the, they're going to experience the wrath of God in the active way that we looked at. In a very active way, God is going to passively pull away and actively pour out. And it'll be for the end of them if we understood the judgment, if we understood the wrath of God, if we understood how horrible it was, we would, all of a sudden, Jesus becomes way more beautiful. And all of a sudden, our heart for the lost people in the world starts to change and break. Oh man, people you don't understand. Like the prophets who went to Israel and said, listen, God's judgment is coming. And You've never experienced something so horrible in your life. You've never, you don't understand the depths of the sorrow, the pain, the grief. You know, you thought it was bad when you had cancer. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's just a judgment of living in this broken world that has a curse in it. Could you imagine the final judgment? It's not better when they die if they die apart from Christ, if they die and they come under the wrath of God and are separated from Him forever, it's way worse. When you see pictures of people writhing in pain and gnashing their teeth, and they, they see, there, there's the absence of any joy. That's what it is. They writhe and they writhe and they writhe because there's an absence of any goodness, any pleasure, any joy, and all there is is suffering. All there is is this judgment When you see that, and life will give you chances to see it, when you see that kind of torment, look carefully, because you're going to see what the eternal judgment of God is like. And the only hope, the only remedy, the only solution is Jesus. That's it. The one in whom the wrath of God has been poured out. If we understood this and contemplated this at all, you know, all of a sudden to stare at the wrath of God, the, the judgment of God, and to see what it's going to be like should cause you to tremble. And then you turn to Jesus and see what happened in Him and that you belong to Him. and that the, now, now the love and the grace and the goodness of God is poured out on you because of Him. That should cause your heart to rejoice. But all, if you just want to get numb... I'm like, ah, yeah, whatever. The gospel, good. Woo! And you just want to go through life and feel like cruise along, and, and you have no sense of affection for Christ and what he's done, and no sense of fear of the judgment of God, you're in a horrible place. Horrible. That's like being in a drunken stupor where you don't even know what's going on around you. Because until you become a- awakened to the fact but this life is short, my friends. This life is temporary. This life is quickly fading, quickly passing. And the only, and people who kind of start to get that, the older you get, the more you get that. The more you start to feel even death in your own body, and it's like, yeah, it's inevitable, it's coming. I feel the grave coming. I know it's coming. And the older you get, the more that reality hits you. It's coming. And I'm telling you what, maybe God gives you 80 years, 90 years. That is so short in light of eternity. So short. Eternity. This is why Jesus says, he's throughout the gospel, he's just trying to give people the eternal perspective. You know, don't fear them who can destroy your body. Why would you? (laughs) Because it's so temporary. Fear him who can throw both body and soul in hell for eternity. Fear Him. If you want to know what to fear, but we lose perspective so fast. So may God help us awaken. Awaken us to understand His supreme wrath because only then can you look at Jesus and you want to kiss His feet. Oh, my Savior, my Jesus who delivered me from the wrath of god I actually I actually pray that god would be so merciful to show us show us our own sinfulness and to show us how awful it would be to suffer under his judgment because nothing will awaken you like that and then to see behold jesus as your savior You'll be awakened and stirred. You'll have compassion on people. And you will love like you've never loved because of how you've been loved. May God help us to understand his wrath so that we may truly understand the gospel. Amen. Father, we're very thankful. Uh, Father, I love you and I praise you for being merciful and not giving not giving us what we deserve. We are so sinful, Lord. Our sin is profound and it's deep and it so permeates our being that we're so often clouded and undiscerning and unwise and unseeing and even the realities of eternity. We have a hard time and unless you reveal to us your your holiness and our sinfulness, and then your wrath on sin, and then what you did in Jesus, we just, we cannot see it and understand it. But, oh God, please help us to see ourselves in light of who you are. Help us to understand your judgments and your wrath. Help us to see our salvation in Jesus and so change and rend our hearts that we would put off this complacency, put off our drowsiness, our stupor, and we would turn to you with all our hearts and fall at your feet and praise you forever and ever and ever. Amen.